All right, we're continuing our series, Seeds, and we've got a few more weeks in this. Um, how many of you guys ever wish you had closer friends? Anybody? Closer friends? Nobody? You guys are happy the way things are? Must be all right? You guys are doing well? Um, I mean, we have a lot of casual friends, don't we? We have a lot of acquaintances. We've got online now. We have a lot of social media friends. We've got our, our reach seems pretty, pretty wide, but... Um, what I'm talking about is like real close friends. We were talking about this at our real life group the other night about what it takes to have real close friends. And uh, there's something a lot of writing has been done about called Dunbar's number. Some of you guys might be familiar with this, but basically Dunbar's number is the highest number of stable relationships a person can sustain at any time. And so we go through different seasons of life, and so your relationships change and, and, and ebb and flow depending on your circumstance, your job, your, all that kind of stuff. But they've come up with a number as they've studied ancient you know, uh, cultures and tribes and family groups throughout the ages, and they came up with a rough number as to what it seems like is the number before things start to break down. When you get higher than this number, you kind of have to have different systems as a way to relate to one another. You lose connection, but, but there's a, a number that you can kind of maintain at any time, and that number is about 150 people. They, of, of relationships that are in your orbit that are actual relationships that you can have. And obviously that changes based on, I mean, you know, some people are more you know, able to connect than other people, but as a general rule, that's what the number they came up with is. And, and they said that in that, within that number, there's an inner core of people that you have, about five people, again, that will vary from family group to family group or whatever your, your particular situation is, but there's about five people or so that you spend 40% of your time with. So that's a pretty big chunk. And that, you know, some of you guys, you already know who they are. You, they were chosen for you even. Maybe they're your family. You just spend all the time with them. And then on top of that, there's another 10 people that you spend about 20% of your time with. And so they're saying that there's really, within that 150, there's about 15 people that you spend about two-thirds of your time with. And again, that's going to vary from person to person. But a couple interesting things about that. Um, if you can, a couple things we need to know. If that is true, and if there's 150, and if there's five, and if there's uh, 15 or 10 or whatever it is, how do you guys know you better, to your best ability, better select those people well, right? I and mean, we better be, be concerned about who those people are. Because there's a lot of things that, you know, like show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Or, you know, we're formed in uh, the way of uh, really you know, the people around is a form of discipleship. And then the other thing is, if that is true, then we better learn to tend to those people well, right? We better learn how to interact with one another well. And we better understand how to do that. We better understand how to forgive one another. We better understand how to love one another. Because you can... You know, you can have a business, you can function in a business without forgiving and without loving. You can do it. You can find a way to do it. People do it all the time. You can function in politics without forgiving, without loving, for sure. You can function in school without forgiving and loving, but you cannot function in these type of relationships without forgiving and loving. And you cannot have close friends without forgiveness and without love. And so Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15 says this, it says, strive for peace with everyone. <laughs> Don't you love the scriptures? Oh man, with everyone, not leaving anyone out. 
and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That means when you're striving for peace with everyone, that means we're, one of the things we're trying to do is to make sure that everyone around us, either through God or through us, receives his grace. And it says, so that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So it talks about a root of bitterness. You guys know that, any gardeners out there, you know that a weed with deep roots is one of the most immovable objects on the planet. You guys ever been there before? Isn't that frustrating? But isn't it also interesting that the Bible tells us to be rooted and grounded in the love of God? Because if you are rooted and grounded in the love of God, it is hard for you to be moved by people and reactions and circumstances when you're rooted and grounded in the love of God. But in the same way, if you are rooted in bitterness, it's also hard for you to be moved. It's hard for you to be moved with compassion for people. It's hard for you to be moved with empathy for people. And in some ways, it's hard for us to move forward in areas of our life when our roots are in bitterness. And so the Bible is encouraging us here to not have a root of bitterness. And so that word trouble, it says it springs up and it causes trouble. That word trouble literally means to crowd in or to annoy. <laughs> so it's saying that when this happens, there's going to be some crowding and some annoyance in your life. And then also it says that word defiled means to stain. And so when you have a root of bitterness, it's literally suffocating you in some way. It's suffocating the life that God wants you to live, and it's tainting the life that God wants you to live. And what is supposed to be beautiful, God wants us to have beautiful lives, all of a sudden become bitter. And every single one of us here have probably experienced that in some way where, where when we're rooted in bitterness or we have a, a, an offense or something in our life, maybe even the same activities we used to enjoy now have a bitterness to them, right? Like the, maybe even the same people that we used to enjoy now have a bitterness, the same thing, and all of a sudden we're suffocated and something is stained and tainted. And it's just not the design that God has for us. And so... How does this all start? Well, a root of bitterness always starts with a seed of offense. Let me say it again. A root of bitterness, to get to that level of bitterness having deep roots, it starts with a, a seed. It starts with an offense. And here's where I anticipate losing some people. Because I know that some of you might be thinking, this is time for me to check out of the message. I should have stayed home and watched the Chiefs game. Because... <laughs> And I commend you for being here. And those of you guys who have earbuds in now, right now, listening to the game, please take them out. But, <laughs> but some of us, we're like, we don't want to go here. I mean, honestly, we don't want to. We don't want to hear another message on forgiveness. We don't want to hear another message on bitterness. I mean, maybe I've tried this. I've done this. It doesn't seem to work. It doesn't. I'm not interested in another message on on forgiving offenses. And if that's you, let me just gently nudge you just a little bit, because if that is you, first of all, let me just say this. If you don't want to hear about forgiving offenses, then forgive, you got to understand, forgiving offenses is the very heart of the gospel. And if you don't want to hear about the topic of forgiving offenses, then you probably won't hear much of the gospel anymore. Because forgiveness is what God, it's what has been done for us, but it's also what God wants to have happen through us as well. That actually is the gospel. That it's done for us and it's also done through us. And then secondly, no matter how mature you get in God, 
No matter how long you live, no matter how long you've been following God, no matter how good you get at forgiving other people, for the rest of your life, I hate to break it to you, but there will always be opportunities for you to forgive, no matter how good you get at it. There will always be people in your life. There will always be opportunities. And so we might as well embrace this, as painful as it is, and decide that I'm going to get as good at this, at this as I possibly can and with the help of the Holy Spirit. Because in Luke chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, he says, it's impossible that no offenses are going to come. Like, they're going to happen is what he's saying. You, you cannot work around this. You cannot avoid it. It's going to happen. And they come in all forms. Some of us in this room have been very, very deeply wounded, maybe even by people in this very room. <laughs> Some of us in this room have been hurt in deep, deep ways, Maybe in the past, or maybe it's very fresh for you. And so a root of bitterness has taken hold. But some of us, I want us to understand that it does start as a seed. And there might be actually seeds right now. What, what are some of the seeds of offense that the enemy plants? Well, sometimes the seed of offense, it comes in sneaky ways. It can come in a form like this, where you become actually offended for someone else. That's a seed. Well, it's not happened to me, but I'm offended for somebody else. Come on, parents, it's easy for us to get offended for our kids, isn't it? What is that? That's a seed. It's a seed of offense. It, you know, you, get, you hear about something that was wrong, and yeah, it does stir up some things like that. But then when, it, when that seed now gets planted in our heart, then the enemy has something to work with. Another sneaky form is when you get offended over a decision that someone has made or a situation that has happened that's not sin, but it's just preference. I can't tell you how many times that, that um, somebody has, over the years, you know, we've been doing this for a long time now, how somebody has been upset over a decision that I've made as the pastor of the church that was not a sin decision. It was just a particular preference of the way we were doing something type decision and a seed of offense got in. Wasn't even sin. So I wanna challenge you for just a little bit. Are there situations in your life right now where maybe a family member or a friend or something made a decision that was not a sin decision against you, but it was simply a preference. They decided to do something you didn't like and their seed of offense can happen or a situation that happens. See, these are the ways that a seed of offense gets into our life that eventually produces a root of bitterness. Or how about, about this when you have an, you've legitimately been offended or wronged by somebody in the past, and now we take that and we layer it on the next relationship that comes in our life. And now we've put a seed of offense in between us and an innocent person. See, the enemy does this in so many different ways. Let me show you another spot. We've been talking about the parable of the sower, right? Well, there's something interesting in the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, Jesus is explaining the different seeds that fell on different ground. And it says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I want you to understand that tribulation and persecution came, what? On account of the word of God. 
Do you realize that you can be offended by the word of God? You can be offended. How does that happen? Well, sometimes when, when we're trying to follow after the word of God and we get so much friction from culture, sometimes we can be offended that God asks us to take a stand on certain things. And we can get frustrated. Sometimes we can get offended by the word of God because it challenges us and it convicts us. Have you ever been there before? Like, I just don't like that. I don't like that, that you say that, God. Like, I really, it, has anybody ever been offended? I literally have. I've been like, I don't like that. Like, why? Why do you have to say that, you know? And so we can get offended by the word of God. So we have to understand that a seed of offense can grow into a root of bitterness if we don't deal with it. And so the best thing we could do right now, now we're gonna deal with roots, but if you notice a seed right now, the best thing you can do with a seed is to pluck it up before it becomes a root. It's a whole lot easier to just get it out now before it becomes a root. And so, you know, somebody might be here saying, well, okay, maybe there's something in my life, but I'm not giving it attention. I'm not watering it. I'm not feeding it. Listen, I got some news for you. Satan has no problem going to work on your behalf to water and fertilize the seed that's been sown in your heart. So it's not a matter of just like, well, I'm not doing it. It's like, no, you've got to deal with it. And so I encourage you, even if it feels like something very small right now, don't judge things by their current size. Judge them by their agenda. Judge them by what they're trying to accomplish in your life. And it may be small right now, but if you play that, game play that out, the potential is huge. And so in that Luke 17, 1, it talks about offenses in the New King James. The ASV talks about, it calls them temptations to sin. The Amplified Version calls them traps. And it's the Greek word scandalon, which means this. It's part of the trap to which bait is attached. John Bevere calls it the bait of Satan. And he wrote this book called The Bait of Satan. <laughs> this book, and I, I've shared this with you many times, but this book is the best book I've ever read on learning how to forgive and to walk free from offenses. And so if you have an offense or a root of bitterness, maybe it's against somebody else, what I wanna do is walk through something I've taught before, but it sounds so simplistic, but it's, it's, it's rooted in scripture. And even though it's simplistic, the question is not how simple is it, but how much of it are we doing, right? And so what, what do you do if you have something, if you know there's something between you and somebody else, for example, what do you do? Well, the first thing you do is you pray for them. You pray for them. And every time I preach on this topic, it seems like lately, I tag team preach with John Bevere and I unapologetically do it because I, I want you to understand why I do that. Many times I'm trying to connect, I have questions all the time, like what do you, what do you listen to, what books are you reading, what, what's influencing you? I'm trying to connect you back to resources that you can go and explore on your own if you have an issue. And so John Bevere is gonna talk about the power of praying for someone else and essentially how hard it is, but how freeing it is. So let's take a look. But I tell you, pray for anyone who mistreats you. I thought, whoa, pray for anyone who mistreats you. Do you know what's amazing? Not once in the whole gospels does Jesus tell us to pray for our mother. Show me the verse. It's not there. Not once does he tell you to pray for your father. Now, do we not pray for our mom and dad? Yeah, you pray for your mom and dad. Okay, but what I find to be amazing is the person that Jesus specifically isolates and tells you you must play for is the person who has mistreated you. So I remember the Lord showed me that and the Lord said, pray for him. So I got up, I started pacing the floor and I said, Father, 
Bless him. That's about all I could say that day. The next day, Lord, if you can, bless him. And I kept praying that way every day with that kind of monotone voice with no passion. And so after about five weeks, I'm still in the same shape. And I'm on a three-day fast, and the Lord said to me, read Psalm 35. I had no idea it was in Psalm 35. So I start reading Psalm 35, and the first 10 verses make no sense at all, which is so funny. You're like, okay, I'm reading. And then I get to verse 11, and look at this. Evil people pay me back evil for good. I said, hey, that's me. And I sink in despair. I did this guy good. He paid me back evil. So I'm thinking, you know, David's going to say, like, bust their teeth out, right? Like some of the Psalms do, right? But look what David says. He says this. He says, but when they, the evil people that paid me back good, right, evil for good, when they were sick, I dressed in mourning. I deprived myself of food. I prayed with my head bowed low as I would pray for a friend or a brother. And the Lord spoke, speaks to me and said, son, you pray for him, what you want me to do in your life, your family, or your friends. Now that changed. And I remember I got up from the table and I started pacing the floor. I said, Father, I said, I pray that this man would know you the best a man would know, can know you. I pray that he would please you the best a man can please you. I pray that you would reveal your heart to him. I pray that, that you would open up the wisdom of your word to him. I pray that you would surround him with men and women that will speak godly counsel into his life. Deliver him from wicked and unreasonable men. Surround him, Lord, with godly men and women. I ask that you'd bring finances in for his ministry from unexpected quarters. Lord, protect his wife and children. So I start praying this way. Can I tell you? It wasn't easy. It was painful. So some people think in order for us to be, our prayers to be correct and accurate, they have to feel good. Okay, can I make a point? When a guy is on a leg curl machine and they are putting 20 pounds on there and he is recovering from a blown ACL, that guy wants to scream and hit that physical therapist, right? Because it is so painful. So this was, you just can't pray what feels good. You've got to pray truth. So I just kept praying for him this way with as much passion as I could muster up, which wasn't a lot. But I kept doing it every day and I'd pray for him like almost five minutes every day. And I remember after two weeks, there was a little more passion. And I was starting to pray. I was excited about praying this for him. And what's happening? I'm starting to get healed. You see what I'm saying? So I, st I was praying like this for like five, six weeks. And I remember on this, there was a certain day I was outside. It was early in the morning. I was at a construction site praying. And I remember I was praying for this guy. And all of a sudden, out of my spirit comes this. So and so, I love you. I called out his name and said, I love you. And when I did, I felt like junk came up. It was just like junk. And I thought, I'm healed. I'm healed. I'm totally healed. Well, he'll, he'll find, as he, if you listen further in that message, he finds out he wasn't totally healed, but he felt like that in the moment because it's part of the process. This idea of praying for your enemies, it's one of those su subjects that people get offended by the word of God because they think, ah, it doesn't really mean that. I've talked to tons of believers when I talk about this topic of praying for your enemies, whether it's praying for the other political side or praying for somebody who's hurt you, they almost think, you shouldn't do that. But Jesus said it. And it is, again, it's not, it's, it's very simple, but it's also very, very hard. And so 
One of the reasons why he wasn't totally free, because there are some times, now this isn't for every situation, there are sometimes you may pray and you may go through it and you're free. And that may be all you need to do just to be free from it. But there are some times when you actually need to do the second part, which is to go to them. Because there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Sometimes you can just forgive and everything's fine and you can move on, but sometimes there needs to be this process of being reconciled or at least attempting to be reconciled to one another. And the Bible tells us how to do that. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, there's a couple different ways that we do this. There are a couple different reasons. One is what it talks about here where it says, if another believer sins against you, you go to them. Another reason is if you know you've sinned against somebody else. So if somebody sins against you, or if you know you've sinned against them, there might be reason to go to them. And so it goes on. It says, if another believer sins against you, go privately, point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, then you have won the person back. It's reconciliation. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two, one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And if the person still refuses to listen, then take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, then treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Now, let me just start off and say this isn't for extreme cases where there's safety issues at, at, in play or, you know, extreme abuse situations where, you know, you might, I mean, boundaries, sometimes you have to have boundaries. These are for things that are, these are, you know, everyday, common, every year. It doesn't mean it's not deep, deep hurt. It just means that it's for particular situations. But there are a few assumptions that this passage is making if you're going to do that. And I want to point out and do a little teaching on this, the seven assumptions that this passage is making that I'm going to draw out of this. And the first assumption is this, that if you're going to go to this person and confront them, then the first step to deal with an offense is to talk to that person directly and privately. Not everybody else first, <laughs> but you go to the person. Now, I understand there's a time when you've got to get advice and ask something, but, but what we don't do is start a prayer chain and try to, you know how we do these things. Like, I just want to tell you about how all this stuff, and let's pray for this person because of all the stuff they've done. Let's not start small groups over this person and this offense and then get in preparation for it. No, it's saying you go to this person first. And my kids, we have this conversation quite frequently, and I've told a lot of different people this, but... Sometimes people will be talking to me about something that's happening, you know, with them and somebody else, and finally I'll just stop and I'll say, you're talking to the wrong person. Because the Bible says you need to go to them. And I can't tell you how many times I've said that, you're talking to the wrong person. And so this is the first assumption, that you're going to go to them directly and privately for reconciliation. The second assumption is this, it's assuming that you're right, <laughs> that you're on the right side of the issue and that there's been a genuine wrong. How many times have we assumed we were right about something and in pride and arrogance just assumed we were right and then later on found out that we were wrong? You know what this causes me to do? It doesn't mean that I don't go to the person and try to work it out. It just makes me go with some humility because I think I'm 100% right, but I may not be but I'm going to approach this with humility. And the third assumption is this, that if there has been a wrong in your, in your mind, that two or three other mature, solid believers 
would see that you have been wrong and they'd be willing to go with you to settle together. The two or three other people would be able to say, yeah, yeah, that's been, yeah, that was wrong, yeah. It's not just your gossip buddies, <laughs> but just like two solid, three solid believers that look at the situation objectively outside looking in and say, yeah, that's a problem. And would also, the fourth assumption is this, that the leadership of the church would also clearly see, yes, a wrong has been done. And if necessary, if it elevated to that level, would also be willing to go with you to settle it if it were, if it were to get to that level for direction and correction. And number five is a huge one. It's making the assumption that you are going to this person for the purpose of reconciliation, not condemnation. Do you see how different this will go when you go to the person when your mindset is going in not just to condemn and not just to prove how right you are and how wrong they are, but it's going with the purpose of I want to be reconciled to you. That's my heart in this. And if you go in humility and you go directly and you go in, in with a heart of reconciliation, not condemnation, maybe some fruit can happen out of this. And this, this sixth one is also a huge one. It, it's assuming that you have already predecided to forgive no matter how it turns out. That no matter how they, even if you go through all the steps, you've gone to them privately, they reject it, you take a couple back, and they reject it, you, even the leadership of the church agrees this is a problem, it's rejected, and you have to essentially treat them as if they don't love the word of God anymore, and you have to actually separate in that way, you have still predecided that I am forgiving even before I'm going, and your heart is clean. And number seven this passage is making clear that if you are a real follower of Jesus, that you repent when you're wrong. Like this is on the flip side, that if somebody comes, it, it prepares our heart, that when, when someone comes to us, that we should have a heart of repentance and humility. And knowing that, yeah, they may be wrong or they may be right, but I want to listen when somebody comes to me to see if there's anything here that I need to repent of because I wanna follow Jesus in such a way. You know, in some ways, if, you, if you've already forgiven them and the relationship isn't strained, you may not need to go to them. You, you don't need to go to them and be reconciled if it's just simply on your end and you just need to, to, to pray for them and be done with it. You don't, don't go to them and say, hey, you know what? You did these horrible things. I want you to know I already forgave you, but here's all the horrible things you did, but I forgave you. <laughs> that happened many, many times. It's like, now I'm offended. Like, I didn't even know I did anything, but now I'm offended that you would do this, Right? But no, you, you just, sometimes you just, you just pray and that's it. But here's what I want to say. So there are times when you need to go and work it out. And, and here's why. Because over time, the pain of not talking about this actually can become worse than the actual event that happened. Because what happens is over time, it just builds. It just erodes. At, it just the bitterness, the lens the disconnect relationally. Over time, the pain of not talking about something can actually be worse than the actual event. And so that's why it lays out a process. You pray for them. We may have to go to them. And then the, the third thing is then we release them. We release them to God. Now, one, one more clip from John Bevere, and um, he shares in this a testimony and I, I want to share it because I think some of us are experiencing this, and I think it'll help us out to hear what can happen when we walk in freedom in this area. So one more clip. 
the bottom line we as believers should live by, I believe, is shown in, in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, sometimes it's not possible. There are people that will not be reconciled. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, we go over it in the book, how to handle these situations. But as much as possible with you, live peaceably with all men. I want to end it with a testimony and then I want to pray. I'll never forget the time I was doing a conference in Florida. This, this is just etched in my memory forever. It was a packed out conference. And the leader of the conference, you know, was getting ready to introduce me. He said, you know, before I introduce our guest speaker tonight, I want so-and-so to come up and, and, and share with us. And I remember this guy comes walking up on the platform and it looked like he just literally got off the construction job. He's got jeans that are completely dirty, torn holes in them. He's um, got a shirt that's dirty on him. He, he, he looks like a construction worker. He's got a beard. And he walks up on that platform in front of all these people. And the, the host starts interviewing him and, and, and he said, you know what, Let's, let, just tell your story. And he, he takes the mic and he said, I'm 36 years old. And he said, I've been raised in a Christian home. I've been a Christian ever since I can remember. He said, but all my life, there has been a wall between me and God. He said, I, I will go into services like this. People get touched by the presence of God and I feel completely on the outside looking in. I feel like there's a wall. He said, I will try to pray and get in the presence of God. I've never been able to do it. He said, and then a couple weeks ago, somebody put in my hands the book, The Bait of Satan, what we're talking about. And he said, I read the book in two days. And he said, when I got to the end of the book, I realized I held unforgiveness against my mother. He said, my mother gave me away when I was six months old. And he said, so I contacted my mom and talked to her for the second time in 36 years. He said, I said, mom, I've held unforgiveness against you for 36 years for giving me away. She started crying on the phone. She said, I've hated myself for 36 years for giving you away. Well, he forgave her. She forgave herself. Remember, Jesus said, if you have ought against any, forgive them. Any includes you. Okay, if God forgave you, you need to forgive yourself. Amen, amen, amen. She forgave herself. Now the guy is crying so profusely, tears are running off his beard onto his shirt. And I'm, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm like, wow. He looks at us weeping and he says, now the wall that's been between me and God for 36 years is completely gone. He said, I've been crying like this for the last three weeks. He said, I cry like this when I pray in the morning. I cry at this when I come into services. Do you have the right to be offended? You have the right to do anything. If you want to go to hell and burn in hell forever and ever, God will protect your right to burn in hell forever because he's given us a free will. But if you want to walk with God, you do not have the right to be offended. Two wrongs have never made a right. The fact that you were mistreated was wrong, but your sin of being offended is not justified by the fact that you were mistreated. Two wrongs don't make a right. What we need to do now is pray. He's preaching now, right? He's preaching. I want to give away this book to somebody. Anybody, anybody want this book? The, the most offended person in the room. Who, who needs this? <laughs> who, just run up here, whoever you are. Just run up here. Who, yeah, come on. Uh-oh, Brian made it. Okay, you, most offended person in the room. All right, all right, we'll take it. Now he's offended that I said that. But no, he'll, he got the book now, so he's all right. He's all right. <laughs> uh, 
It's a good book. Pick it up. Last, last thing is release them. Now, what's interesting in Hebrews chapter 12, you know, it talks about the root of bitterness and trouble and defiled, and then it keeps on, it keeps going. It's a continuation, and it says something really, really weird. It seems like out of context. It says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Like, this is out of the blue. Who did what? He sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. You guys remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn. He was due the, the birthright, which was like influence. It was land. It was, it was a lot of you know, money and all that kind of stuff. And it, in their culture, I mean, that was a big, big deal. I mean, the firstborn. And his younger brother, Jacob, had already tried to con him out, he was conning him out of stuff all the time, and, and he was a conniver and, and all that type of stuff. Well, one day, Jacob's making soup and stuff, and he's, you know, making evidently a really good bowl of soup. And, and Esau's coming in, he's coming off a hunt, and he is famished, he is just hungry, and he says, give me that bowl of soup. And Jacob's like, no, I'm not giving you this bowl of soup. He's like, give me the bowl of soup, I'm going to die of hunger out here. And he's like... No, I'm not giving you this bowl of soup. And he's like, well, sell me your birthright for this bowl of soup, and then we'll do the, the deal. And finally, Esau, you know what I mean? Your word was your bond in that time. And so Esau is finally, he's like, what good is my birthright if I'm dead? So uh, yeah, let's do the deal. And so he exchanged his birthright for a bowl of soup. Something so big, so influential, his future essentially over something so temporary and something in the long term that was not going to be very fruitful for him. And so what it's saying here is this root of bitterness, this seed of offense, it, that what we're doing by hanging on to something, we're trading our future for something that in the long run is not worth the exchange. Don't trade your future for a prison of bitterness is what it's saying. And so if you're struggling here and you're like, okay, I, yeah, sure, we all got stuff going on, but how do I know if I'm in unforgiveness? How do I know if I've dealt with it or not? And you can give yourself a test. Here's just a simple test. When you think about that person or situation, do you have compassionate thoughts, kind thoughts, humble thoughts, meek thoughts, patient thoughts? Or does it stir up anger and resentment, a justifying attitude, always trying to confirm how right you are? This is just a small little test. Maybe even a better test is, is this. If you've got somebody that you're like, okay, have I gone there? Have I forgiven or not? Have I released how many arguments are you having with them in your head still? Because <laughs> we're always really good. We win all the arguments in our head too, right? It always makes sense. And so see, here's the thing. The sin is not the thought. Because even if you've forgiven somebody, there's still probably going to be a thought here and there, something that triggers that. The sin is not the thought. The sin is the replaying of the thought, the sin is, it's almost like a form of demented, uh, demonic entertainment that makes us think we're going to feel better by the replay. That's when Satan starts to let the seed turn into a root. And so forgiveness is about reclaiming lost territory in our heart and mind. Satan's, he wants to claim as much territory in our heart and mind as he can, and forgiveness is one of the ways that we back him off and we begin to reclaim territory in our mind and in our heart that has been lost. And so I just say it this way, do not create a home in your heart for an offense. 
What do you do with people who you have guests in your home? What do you do? You feed them. You make them feel comfortable. You welcome them in. You do all this stuff. Don't do that for your offense. Treat your offense, if you've got an offense, treat it like an intruder, not a guest. Get really serious about this and treat it as if it's a, what would you do for an intruder? Come on, people, what would you do? Like, you would treat it in a different way than a guest. Like, and there's probably a spectrum on how we would do that. But some of you guys, I know, you would, like, not tolerate it at all. So start looking at offense in your life as if it's an intruder, not a guest. Don't, don't, uh, don't feed it. Don't, don't just give it little subtle hints to go away. I remember years ago, I was, uh, we were, I don't even know we were married, but we were hanging out at our, at our youth pastor's house, and we'd been hanging out late, and, and it was, we were playing video games and stuff, and all of a sudden, he just gets up from the couch. He just stands up to us abruptly, and he's like, well, thanks for coming over. <laughs> oh, okay, I guess we're done here. We're grabbing our stuff, right? And I wonder how many hints he gave us before that, that we were just too young and too not paying attention to pay. He was probably giving us all kinds of hints, and we didn't. So finally, he just had to stand up and say, well, thanks for coming over, right? So this is the same way. So many of us, so many of us are we're just giving little hints, like, I don't want you to be here. I want to be, you know. No, you, you treat it like an intruder, not a guest. So the worship team can come back up. We're just going to pray and, uh, and give this to God. I want you to understand, forgiveness doesn't mean acceptance of what somebody has done as if it's right. That's not true. When you forgive, it doesn't mean that you're making, you're, you're saying what they did was okay. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. Forgiveness can be given instantly. Trust has to be earned back many times. Sometimes the relationships that have been broken can't even go back to what they were. But we can still forgive even, even if that is the case. Forgiveness really is, is about releasing someone from revenge. Because as John Bevere said, we have a right. If you're to look at the score, we have a right for revenge. We have a right to settle the score. But forgiveness is releasing someone for our retaliate, from our retaliation. And you realize that every time forgiveness happens, it costs somebody something. When Jesus forgave us, it cost him something. When you forgive someone else, it costs you something. And so the idea that you're gonna walk in forgiveness without cost is not a biblical idea. It will cost you to walk in forgiveness, but it is the gospel message and it is what we are called to do. And so I know this is a difficult subject and I know it's not easy and I know it's something we deal with at a very, very deep level but I believe it's a healthy practice for us, even if we've done this a thousand times, maybe even with the same people, the same situation. I think it's the right thing for us to do is to walk through this as many times as we can to reclaim more territory. And so what I wanna do is I just wanna pray with you. And so would you stand up with me and let's just put our hearts in a posture, even if, man, even if you realize it's like, oh, I'm still hard-hearted in this area, I'm hard-hearted to this person. Come on, let's go through this exercise by faith, and I'm just gonna pray, and you can pray out loud right there at your seat if you want to, along with me, or you can pray in your heart, you can just receive the prayer I'm gonna pray. But come on, let's just pray. You might even start praying for that person or situation right now, and if all you can get out is bless them, then you start with bless them. But Lord, right now, we just I just speak over all of us 
Oh, Lord, give us a soft heart towards people. Give us your eyes to be able to see people through your eyes. Lord, I thank you that you are the, the healer of the brokenhearted, that you bind up our wounds. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that you have given us and that we have freely received. Lord, help us to be people who freely give. Help us to be people who make sure that everyone around us receives and obtains the grace of God. Lord, would you forgive us for not forgiving others? Forgive me for not forgiving other people. Lord, help us to walk in more freedom than we ever have before. Lord, we release this situation. We release people right now. We know that you are a righteous judge. And Lord, even though it costs us something right now to say this prayer, to receive this prayer, to walk this out, but I pray for every person to be able to be nudged by the Holy Spirit right now, to have the courage and the faith to step out and maybe even once again say, I release them by faith. I forgive by faith. Give me your heart for them by faith. Help me to be a living demonstration of what the gospel message is in my relationships. In Jesus' name.